It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. For the last two and a half years, the COVID pandemic has had an outsized impact across the globe and is leaving a lasting mark on how we operate as a society, from how we work, to how we travel, to how parents raise their children. The fact that COVID seems to be enough under control that we can safely resume most of our pre-pandemic activities can obscure the fact that an amazing, high-speed, high-tech effort led to the production of a vaccine at scale and in record time, and it saved millions of lives. Former Army doctor and infectious disease physician Matt Hepburn led the actual vaccine development effort within Operation Warp Speed, now known as the Countermeasures Acceleration Group. We caught up with Matt recently in the midst of the ongoing new battle with the monkeypox virus. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Freedom Consulting Group. If you're looking for stimulating work in our national security intelligence sector, check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. All right, so Matt, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. We're delighted to have somebody on the show who's at the forefront of vaccine development for COVID and other nasty pathogens that might be out there. So I am absolutely thrilled to be here. <laughs> good, good morning. I'm uh, I'm well caffeinated and uh, ready to drive dive in and uh, uh, tell you, tell you all about what I do. And um, but I do. I, I love your show. I love the concept. I, I got to tell you, you, you had me at D- John Shire. So um, as a uh, <laughs> as a lifelong Duke basketball fan, certainly. Um, uh, extraordinary interview and really appreciate the diversity of folks you bring in. Um, you really feel honored to to kind of be part of them. And uh, I see a lot of similarities, which I'm happy to highlight, and also some kind of very unique things, which, which I get a, the privilege to work on every day. Hey, well, why don't we start at the beginning and tell us what brought you into military medicine in the first place? Because that's really all, where it all started. You know, I always wanted to to be a physician. I always wanted to be in the military. My dad was a was an active duty Navy officer and a nuke engineer, and served active duty for uh, a number of years, and then became a reservist uh, for a number more. And, and my mom, my mom was a nurse, and they imbued in me this sense of service. It was service to others, service to your country, and for me, it's kind of a best of both worlds that. I made this choice a very long time ago in Army ROTC in college, right? But it's been an incredibly rewarding career because the the mission or the purpose is to serve those that serve us. So I think we have a solemn obligation to protect those uh, that are in harm's way and to take care of their families as well. And I think one of the best ways to do that is offer them world-class health care. Um, but where I've really focused my career is this idea that when we say in harm's way, that can also be from infectious diseases. That was this call to action and the solemn obligation where I wanted to serve, uh, I wanted to be a physician, but what really was a, a seminal moment in my career was uh, after, right after 9-11, I know every, everybody has their 9-11 stories as we should, and we should never forget. My story was 9-11 soon after the anthrax letters. And uh, with the anthrax letters, if you remember, again, the fear 
that was involved with those. And, and also, but then there was a strong sense of purpose in the military medical community and especially our research community to say, we can never let that happen again. And we need to make sure we have vaccines and treatments against anthrax, but against all these other bad things that infectious diseases can cause. So you're an Army physician, and you talked about why it's important for the Army to be at the cutting edge of that research. But how much do you work with the civilian side of the medical research community? We do quite a bit, and it's it's something I'm certainly proud of. We can talk about a lot of examples of that. But I will kind of start with a, a key point that you're going to hear me say a lot is, is that this threat of pandemics and outbreaks and infectious diseases is not going away. And it can take different forms. It can sometimes be that that bad people are engineering an infection. It can be that we have, like we saw with the, with the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're seeing frequent outbreaks now. And I think in the Department of Defense, we have a lot to offer, um, but we never kind of take on this problem alone. Um, throughout my career, I've had the, really the privilege to work across the United States government. I had a job uh, uh, after the H1N1 pandemic in 2009-2010 to work at the White House and to work really across all the aspects of our government, the Health and Human Services and the CDC and the NIH as well as the Department of Defense and, and many other departments and agencies working together kind of as a team to prepare for future pandemics and to deal with outbreaks. I make the analogy as if you think of our government as a basketball team, you know, you don't win with one star player. You win with five great players and a good bench and a great coach and, you know, a great attitude of, of everybody's in there for team first. And so when our government does that, I think we are an incredible force of good and, and very powerful and compelling. So speaking of star players, you had the opportunity to work at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which has come up with a few things like stealth and, and those, those sorts of things. DARPA tries to be disruptive, but how do you draw the line between being disruptive and too risky, especially when it involves health? I had the privilege of being at DARPA for six years. My DARPA leadership said, okay, Matt, we're recruiting into DARPA and we want you to take pandemics off the table. And I said, okay, <laughs> that's, that's a big, <laughs> okay. I mean, but that's, that's kind of the amazing part of getting to work there every day. So the mantra of DARPA is breakthrough innovation for national security. The DARPA leadership uh, had, I think, the prescience and does have the prescience to say that pandemics, outbreaks, and biological threats are national security, one of our greatest national security threats and challenges. But if we truly want to be breakthrough, uh, you have to take risks. And I think that's the, you know, for the hit the adrenaline zone into the podcast I listened, this idea of that we are going to do things that are not the norm, are not the standard, are not always the safe bets. That DARPA, I think, performs this unique form in our a unique role in our government to be that, to say we're going to invest and partner with groups that are offering technology that's totally breakthrough, but that others wouldn't partner with. And you say, well, why wouldn't others partner with? Why if it's if it's great stuff? then why doesn't everybody just invest in it and we develop it? And it's because once you have an early technology breakthrough or you're trying something, you don't know if it's going to work. And most of the way that we fund research in our government, but also in our society, because it's the same thing in the private sector and philanthropy, 
is that most groups aren't willing to take the financial risk. They want to make a sure bet. And DARPA teaches you, you're not going to make a sure bet. You're going to do something that no one else would bet on. But you have to couple that not sure bet with as much research and, and background and as much thoroughness as you can. The magic of DARPA isn't just that high risk early bet. It's also saying, okay, if you're not where you need to be in a year or two years or three years, we're going to stop. So high risk, fail fast. And that's the winning combo. So Matt, I would imagine though, that with uh, a pandemic, the sort of two major variables to those of us who are novices are transmissibility and lethality. And when both of those are starting to climb pretty high, that your tolerance for risk would also climb. Is there a balance there as well? It's very counterintuitive, I think, to say this, but I really mean it. And that is that you can have the best of both worlds, that the idea of accelerating product development, as we did with Operation Warp Speed, but as we did in tons of DARPA programs, too, that created a lot of the foundation, that you can move very quickly and you can accelerate product development and you can still maintain the absolute highest standards of manufacturing quality, of the evaluation of product safety, of the regulatory approval, and to the point of, of risk and, and criticism, which I want to talk a lot about. I mean, there, you know, everything that we did at the beginning of Operation Warp Speed was criticized, all aspects, all angles. And again, it was it was bulletin board material. <laughs> I think again for the basketball analogy, you know, when the, when all the experts say it can't be done, that's that's what I love. Um, but what we did though, and, and and I won't get too technical with you, but what we said at the very beginning is is that we were going to run clinical trials to determine the safety and the effectiveness of vaccine, and we weren't going to run the trials in three thousand people or in. 6,000 people, but actually 30,000 volunteers. I mean, that is a massive clinical trial. And we were, that was just the first, that was for each vaccine we were gonna do that. And then we were gonna continue in real time evaluating if the, if the vaccine products were safe and effective. So that's not compromising safety in any way. That, that was a decision that we made. And, and similarly, the vaccines, all everything we did went through FDA approval. And, you know, in my opinion, FDA really sets the world standard for ensuring the safety and quality of medical products. And so that was always part of it. And so then you say, well, that's impossible. How can you be safe? How can you do this and still be fast? I mean, it's clearly resources. We've talked about that already. I think it's energy and willpower and Frankly, it's all the squishy stuff. <laughs> when people come together and they rally around a goal and you have people that believe, I, I do want to keep coming back to this. No one believed we could do it. My leadership did. <laughs> I did. We had, a, we had a small handful of people and, you know, the companies didn't. And But the vaccine manufacturers, you know, they, they with a lot of work and patience and, and partnership, you know, every time they said, well, well, we can't do this. It takes six months. We're like, okay, we work the problem 24 seven until it took two weeks. And I can give you a thousand examples of that, but it's this part again of willing to challenge the status quo, not believe all the, the critics and the experts and making it happen. So really the, the big, I think, success factor here was the financial risk and the willing of the community to be adaptable to new methodologies is 
how you guys are able to do that. Leadership, leadership, leadership and teams. And, you know, I know the comment is made frequently. It's not, and no one goes this alone, right? So we, you can take an individual risk as an individual, but you do that because of the mentorship, the training you've had, and the more team and focus and buy-in you have, the more successful you are to be. And so at DARPA, as an example, the leadership, every program manager there was saying, you're not pushing the envelope far enough. Where's the breakthrough? And you'd go back to the drawing board and you would go through this iteration. It was extremely challenging because the DARPA leadership was like, we're not going to we're not going to settle for incremental. And it was the same thing at Warp Speed. It was the leadership that made the huge difference. And then that, that just catalyzes this focus and energy that changes the world. If you want to serve your country by being on the front lines of providing critical information to our nation's key decision makers, consider a career in the intelligence community. Freedom Consulting Group offers a highly rewarding way to be part of the intelligence community in the private sector. If you're an experienced coder and an American citizen and are looking for great work environment, job security, and terrific benefits, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. So speaking of warp speed, which for somebody who's been living on a different planet for the last three years, just is the effort that was used to develop and distribute a, several COVID vaccines at scale and was very successful. What were the government agencies that were involved and, and the different roles and responsibilities and how did you get them to work together? You know, the pandemic happened and I was working in the Department of Defense and they said, look, we've got this idea that we're going to bring together the best of the military and the best of health and human services and put put a team together. When that happened, there was no guarantee that that would work as a team because they were incredibly different cultures, as I think everybody can, can certainly appreciate. But it is in that mixing of different expertise that was key to the success. And frankly, I, I had a unique opportunity to be, if you will, the translator between the two worlds because I had worked very closely with the NIH and the CDC and the Health and Human Services in many previous roles. And I understood vaccine development from an immunology and scientific standpoint. But I also understood the military culture and I understood military operational planning and military leadership. And that's what works. That was the magic. It was, it was bringing together those two cultures. But at the end of the day, what we had is we had a leadership team that got along. And one of my favorite quotes was um, from General Perna, who was the, the four-star general who was in charge of Army Material Command, who was brought over to be the chief operating officer. And at the beginning, but also probably every week or two, he would say, look, guys, we're checking our egos at the door. Team first. It's not about you. Our combined culture had no tolerance for ego, frankly. It was all about the team. So you talked a little bit about the, the parallel development process and the technical challenges there. Can you talk a little bit about the logistical challenges? Because I remember hearing a little bit about that and the fact that the vaccines needed to have a certain temperature to maintain their efficacy and getting that across the country. I think that's a pretty fascinating story as well. I think you both sort of know and understand these people, these professional military officers who do operational planning. They do logistics, operational planning for, for a living. And General Perna led an entire team of uh, mostly Army, but some Navy and Air Force operational planners. And some of these people had great background in medical logistics, so vaccines and how to ship them and how to move medical products. Most of them didn't. 
Most of them came in and said, look, we just know how to organize an operation and we know how to move stuff from point A to point B. But that type of operational planning, I think is maybe I'm stating the obvious is something the military does best. And what came out of it were two things that I think were just extraordinary. Thing one is contingency planning. And again, may seem obvious to most people. One of the things military does best that says, our plan is this, here's plan B, here's plan C, here's plan D, and here's plan E. And then we're going to go back to plan A. And, you know, the, the, the classic quote is, is that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And, it, and it's so, so the military tradition is that you're going to have to adjust you're going to have to take the initiative. But this idea of planning for contingencies, in May of 2020, when Operation Warp Speed was announced, you had a whole bevy of military planners that had already planned the distribution. The second point I'd make about sort of military leadership and operational planning is, is that it's this idea of making decisions in the face of uncertainty. And I think there are risk takers and there are mavericks who, you know, are going to listen to the podcast and they totally get that. They're like, of course, you just decide you go, go, go and all that other stuff. But a lot of people, especially, you know, in large organizations are very hesitant. They want they need more information. Well, we need more data. We're not going to make this decision. We're going to postpone this. We're going to postpone that. And I think military leadership really teaches you you got to act and you're, you're going to act in limited information. You're going to have as much at the time, but you have to act. So Matt, let's, let's rewind the tape just a little bit. In his book, Premonition, you know, which is about the early days before warp speed, uh, Michael Lewis points out what seems like a, a host of perfectly normal human and bureaucratic tendencies that can actually stand in the way of taking action early on in a crisis. Did we learn anything from that, do you think? And if so, what would that be in terms of, of what happened in the early days before you know, people like you got involved? Yeah. It speaks to this idea of decision-making in the face of uncertainty. And it, it really hits at the core of, you know, what we'll call risk-taking. And, and it's, it's the idea that you're not sure what's gonna happen next, but you're collecting information, you're forecasting and trying to predict. And do you make the decision to act or not? When we looked at the early days of COVID and when we looked at previous crises, when we looked at the H1N1 influenza pandemic or Zika or Ebola, there is this similarity of there's an outbreak. We don't know how bad it is. And what do you do next? And this idea of, well, we're not sure how bad it is. And if we do stuff and it turns out to not be so bad and we spent a lot of money, then that may really hurt my government career. <laughs> and I may get fired or I may not get promoted. Um, you see my bias here. Yeah, but you know, sometimes there's the, you know, uh, a lot of people are out there on any given subject saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Yep. And sometimes it actually is. And very often it's not. And being able to sort of tease out, you know, what the real threat is that needs to be, you know, really nipped in the butt. Yeah, we have to be careful of that. You can't motivate people by fear. You know, a lot of people said, well, why don't we prepare for pandemics? And why don't we, well, people don't want to prepare, you know, and, and that's a, an issue that, that I'm, we're dealing with now. And like, how do we prepare for the future? And even with the massive tragedy of COVID that we're still living with and we're, and we're struggling and the horribleness of it all, it's still hard to get people to prepare for the future, but it's hard to prepare them with fear saying, oh, the sky's falling because I do think that's limited. So that's, that's the hard part is, is, 
How do you play your cards with effective messages? But I think the point of the premonition, if there is a core point, is this idea that if you're going to say, here's what we think is going to happen, it really does need to be grounded in as much evidence and expertise and everything, you know, that premonition is one part crystal ball and it's just that intuition that something's bad and one part incredibly data-driven, you know, and using advanced mathematics and everything else to tell us what's happening. But the, the point is, we're never going to really know. And what I advocate for, what my, you know, in that book, we call ourselves the Wolverines and stuff like that. I can tell you that story. But what my fellow Wolverines advocate for and what we continue to advocate for is, is that kind of assume the worst case scenario and go big, go early. And then if we spent a bunch of money and it turned out to be nothing, then you can fire me. Okay, then I'll go do something else. But this go big, go early, prepare for the worst. And that same philosophy, I think, can and should be applied to pandemics and outbreaks. But that's that's hard. It, 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 it takes a risk taker mentality and a group of us, frankly, <laughs> that, that are willing to do that and, and willing to say, OK, criticize me. It's this idea that it's about the mission. It's not about us and that we're going to have to take you have to kind of take these risks early in the outbreak if you're going to be or else you're going to be too far behind. So for the, the COVID vaccine in particular, you used um, an emergency use authorization methodology to get the vaccines out. And so, for example, if there were a vaccine that teaches the body to build antibodies that essentially neutralize fentanyl, and I believe there's one in development, and you know, of course, fentanyl is killing around 70,000 Americans per year, would it qualify for an emergency use authorization? The pandemic was clearly you know, huge magnitude, but going back to this sky is falling, what, where should the, the silver bullets be targeted? How do you determine that where those areas of risk are valid? Yeah. And it's, it's going to bring me back to a, um, a previous point too, but, you know, to start with the pandemic is awful and the opioid epidemic is awful and it is awful beyond awful. And, you know, we have a lot of health challenges in the United States and, and global health challenges. What I've been hopeful for is, is that we can take the lessons learned from this pandemic in developing products, getting products out there that are safe and effective and address all these health problems, including the opioid epidemic, which yeah, just personal anecdotal tragedies that you hear about and they, they just make me cry. There's two parts to your question. First is, can we get even better safe and effective treatments to prevent deaths from opioids? And the answer is yes. And we have current drugs and we can make better drugs. And there's a lot of innovation in that space to see if you can prevent addiction in the first place and if you can prevent some of the worst effects of opioids. So if someone does op overdose, they don't die. There, there's a lot to be done in this space and there's a lot to be done in medical product development. The fundamental principles of medical product development for what we did with Warp Speed, I want to bring us back to the idea of an outbreak and in, in infectious diseases. And, and Sandy, this ties back to your previous comment about the premonition, is that in that book, Carter Metcher, who is a mentor of mine and a, and a really good friend, and, and what he talks about all the time is, is that in the early stages of an outbreak, what we don't understand is how fast it's moving. 
And part of this is sort of human psychology that we think linearly, we don't think exponentially, and we apply a linear solution. You know, we say, okay, well, we can wait a couple of weeks and we can sort of see how it goes because we assume a linear progression and outbreaks are exponential especially in the in those early stages. And there's a really good story in the book, and Carter used to always talk about, of essentially a, a it's called the Mangulch Fire. And it's about uh, firefighters who were overwhelmed by fire because it spread exponentially and they were thinking linearly. And that's what we do. And so the idea of an outbreak and acting early, and that's why I use the hurricane analogy, but even more so, if you act early, you can stop it. If you act late, it's out of control. And so the idea of an emergency use authorization and all these tools that we apply to rapidly spreading infectious diseases is this hope that we can stop it before it becomes massive. And, you know, that's why, again, with warp speed, it was we can't develop a vaccine in 12 years. We have to do this in a year. Now, the future state that we imagine is developing vaccines in 100 days or developing treatments in 100 days. And that sounds outrageous, and I got it, but developing a vaccine in a year sounded outrageous too. <laughs> and so, but, but Sandy, back to your point of, imagine if we could have a whole next generation of products that would help us with preventing death with opioids and we could develop those in 100 days or six months or something like that. We can change the landscape on all of these different health conditions. Looking for meaningful employment within the intelligence community? Look no further. Freedom Consulting Group's a great place to work and has several open positions for American citizens in the technology field. Technical teams at Freedom focus on using the right technology to create flexible, long-lasting solutions for key clients. So if you're an experienced coder looking for a fantastic position in the world of intelligence, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. So let's talk a little bit about uh, public perception, Matt. We all know that there was a lot of politicization of the, of the vaccine and that there are risks of negative public perceptions, whether they're you know, serious or sort of wacky. You have serious medical professionals that are developing these vaccines, and then they get into this really crazy space that can inhibit not only people protecting themselves, but people protecting other people. So how, how does that happen and what do you do about it? I think it's important that we talk about this in terms of complexity and in terms of there are a lot of different people out there and they view things a lot of different ways. And so we can't we can't overgeneralize about, you know, misunderstandings about vaccines are because of this or because of these people, because there, there's so many, there's a lot of different sort of root causes of that. When I was in medical school, it was still the, okay, well, you come to your doctor and your doctor says this and you trust your doctor, and so then you are, and the word we used to use was compliant, right? Compliant with medical therapy. And we're, we're just in a different place right now. And I think uh, that with sort of how we communicate with each other in terms of social media and how we communicate with each other as a society, like all of those factors play in. And what it leads to is, I think sometimes, unfortunately, we incentivize the sensational so that the crazy or outlandish is rewarded and then becomes viral and becomes, you know, that's what we're attracted to. What I think is really, if you will, kind of an opportunity. The first is you have to understand people where they are. And 
if you were saying, what is the number one solution to this, Matt? The the number one solution is is that we have we have a public health system in the United States um, that's been chronically underfunded and not prioritized like it should. And where you see the best community engagement is with primarily with these these public health departments that are in the local communities and can communicate with them and work with community based organizations. And that's a little bit of a cliche, but it's like, but that's the best thing that I've seen. <laughs> like. I did a recent trip to North Carolina. The state health officer there invited me. And we talked about community engagement and vaccine hesitancy. And she said, we're not going to meet in an office. We're going to meet in a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we're going to bring the local county health officers there and who live in that zip code and live in that district and attend that church. And we're going to show you what community engagement means. And it left it. I mean, it's an anecdote, but it was incredibly compelling in terms of the solution. But the final point, though, which I think is interesting, is that if we're in a new era where people aren't going to just listen to their doctors and do whatever the doctor says, there's great opportunity there, too. You know, it comes down, I think, to communication is is what you said. And and along those same lines, you know, the pandemic is continuing and it's not that it's gone away. And it, it seems to be a little bit more transmissible, perhaps a little bit less lethal. I'm not sure that there's a general understanding in the public of what the current status is and where it's going. And is it going to settle out into a norm like the flu? So there's still, I think, a lot of confusion out there. What are your thoughts? So one of the things that's been phenomenal during this pandemic has been our ability to figure out how many people are sick and have that reported you know, the number of cases in the United States and every state and county, and that's reported. And what I'm frankly very proud of is, is that that's transparent and it's publicly available on a daily basis. And that's kind of how it should be. And that type of transparency there, but also in the research, the research community has really stepped up and said, we're going to do research, we're going to accelerate it, and we're going to publish it and share it with the world as soon as we have uh, you know, validated, really proven results. That gives me a lot of hope. In spite of that, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's the hard part is, is that we're still in this phase of dealing with uncertainty in terms of what is the future direction of this pandemic and where where is it going to go? And so the struggle now is this idea of we do need to continue to be vigilant and we have to prepare for the worst, right? Because this we could take a turn for the worst, but yet we also have to balance that with the need for us to come back together as a society and when all those permutations and things that 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 implies. So it's it's hard to juxtapose those two things because we need to still be at it. Where I think the solution is 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 to continue to vaccinate. So what's truly extraordinary was developing vaccines in such short time. What's extraordinary now is as the virus changes and the virus keeps changing very rapidly and creating enormous problems for us, but we're developing vaccines, not against the original virus, but against all the different changes that that virus is making. And so it's hard to predict, are the new vaccines better than the old ones and things like that? But the science is showing us that they probably are. And the extraordinary 
thing that's happening is not only were we able to develop vaccines quickly, we've been able to pivot vaccines so that they're suitable for that future threat. And instead of taking 10 years to pivot, we're pivoting in months. And that gives me a lot of hope. So if, you, if you're looking for what's the one thing that we can do, no matter what the future threat entails, it's to get vaccinated. And it's to, you know, where people are like, well, I've already got a couple of vaccines and I, and I apologize about that. I wish we could give one shot and I wish it was good for life. Um, but I think that the reality is, is that especially for high risk groups, that we may need some cadence of frequent vaccinations to keep them safe. But I see that as a gift, frankly, that we have an option to keep them safe. So, Matt, um, as though you weren't busy enough, there's a new player on the scene, the viral threat scene, and that's monkeypox. I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there. Probably I have a few misconceptions, but tell me about that vaccine. And was it already, was it pre-existing or was it something that was developed quickly? And, And where do you see the trajectory of that going? I would first say that it really does speak to this idea of response and okay, now we have a new outbreak and the, what we are at as a government right now is working really, really hard and working 24 seven to stop this. And there are of course, critics who say, well, it's probably not that bad. It's a terrible infection to have, by the way. It is a terrible, terrible infection. They say, well, not that many people have died. And I say, what a callous thing to say. Um, but <laughs> you hear the criticism from everywhere. Um, but we're not going to listen to the criticism and we're going to be forward leaning and stop the outbreak. And, and our government is working very hard to do that. We were fortunate that the vaccines that we have been working on for decades for smallpox should be also effective in preventing monkeypox as well. And because of that, we've had vaccines already developed. We've had vaccines that were stored and are ready to go. And now those vaccines are rolling out. The reason we're making the point is that was government investment over 20 years. And it it also speaks to this idea of preparing for the future. One of our dreams is that if you take viruses and you put the viruses in different families, like smallpox and monkeypox would be in the same virus family. And if you say, imagine if we could have a vaccine and a treatment that would be common to a whole family of viruses, and you work your way and say, look, we've got a vaccine and treatment that are on the shelf, and they may not be, we may not have a billion doses of everything on the shelf, but we're going to have them on the shelf, and we're going to be able to flip a switch and make 10 million or a billion doses really, really, really fast. Imagine how prepared we could be for the future, you know, and it's, that's the What we're campaigning now is saying, you know, we need to invest. And monkeypox is a really good example that because we had invested in smallpox, that we now have a vaccine that we can readily deploy. So as as a follow-up to that, do you think some of the lessons learned from the Warp Speed project are going to inform some of this positioning for the future and these, these plans that you're hatching? I do, I do, I do. But it's also the hard part. So the people call the phrase pandemic fatigue, and I don't know what that means, but there's sort of like, okay, well, we had the pandemic. We kind of don't even want to think about it anymore. And But also in terms of our government, we have other priorities too. And, you know, we have a huge number of challenges in the 21st century. And so, you know, the, the hard part is there's not an unlimited amount of resources and resources is clearly money, but it's also just energy and priorities. And so, We have to balance this with a lot of the other things that are also 
you know, priorities for our government to do. It's tough to sort of be able to to galvanize that energy and to say, we've learned all these lessons from Operation Warp Speed and from the pandemic response. And lessons learned is what we did well and what we didn't do well, because, you know, we need to do better next time. And I want to go back to the a fundamental lesson and theme is that we got to have people in our government that are willing to take risks and and risk being financial. Safety of a product is never a risk, but willing to say we're going to get a lot of criticism and everybody's going to tell us it can't be done. And that's exactly the space that we're going to be in. And and we as a government can't discourage that behavior and we can't sort of and, and it's not just the government, but sort of in our society in general. So, Matt, this has really been a fascinating conversation, you know, talking to a person who was at the sort of conjunction of technology global cooperation, logistics, industry, political will, money. I mean, sort of the center of the storm. Is there anything else that you would want our listeners to know that that was involved in your participation in this effort and how it all worked that, that going forward? Yeah. And I would say it was really hard, right? And it's hard. It's almost harder now. <laughs> and sort of the, probably everybody on your show sort of says this and says, when you've had a success, you look back and say, well, of course it was a success. And I knew it. And you remember this fondly and things like that. And that just wasn't the case. And, and I mean, we were 24 seven for, you know, almost a, probably an 18 month time period. And it was, it was really difficult to make decisions and to face the criticism and to, to drive this forward. And, you know, I think, but the, the risk takers are the ones that sort of make that calculation, but they're willing to make that leap. And I don't, I kind of think that's almost like an American, it's, it's, it's not unique to America because we see it all over the world, but it's something that I think we have that element in our society that are willing to take that leap. And what I would say is, I kind of want those people in our government <laughs> and I want those people at DARPA and I want military leadership to encourage that uh, decision-making in the face of uncertainty. And I want to encourage the entrepreneurs that have this crazy new idea for a technology that everybody says isn't going to work. And I want them to be very steadfast and resilient um, against that criticism and to, to drive that life-saving technology, because that's where change ultimately happens. Well, Matt, thanks so much for spending time with our listeners today. You know, so many of, the, of our guests are doing sort of sports things or fun things or other interesting things. You're doing life and death things. So we really appreciate the the effort you and your team have put in over the last what, two and a half years or so. And we wish you every bit of success moving forward because it's terribly important for our society and our health to get this right. So thanks. Re really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and Matt, I do hope somebody is writing the story of Warp Speed into a, a book or something, because I know there's so many stories embedded in how the logistics worked and the fits and starts with the vaccine development and the long meetings. I, I just I can't wait to read about it in more detail. Well, thank you both so much. God, it's been I, I love the adrenaline. Theme. I'm still I'm still kind of pinching myself that I got to be part of this today. So really appreciated uh, the conversation. That was infectious disease physician and former vaccine lead for Operation Warp Speed, Dr. Matt Hepburn. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Freedom Consulting Group for sponsoring this episode. Do work that matters. Check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. And check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Matt on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone. See you next week. <laughs>